Let's go before the Lord in prayer. You bore the wrath deserved for me, and now all I know is grace. Lord, may we never get over those words. May the day never come that we can sing words like that and be unaffected. Incredible, absolutely incredible that you, the God of the universe, would, would bear the wrath for us so that all we would know is grace. Incredible. This gospel is incredible, Lord, but it's true, and we praise you. And so this morning, God, I pray that you would come and move with power upon us as we study this text. Oh, God, would you come and grip all of our hearts this morning so that we are transformed and changed by your word. We are desperate for you and needy and pitiful people. But, Lord, with your grace and strength and power, if you come, we will be helped. So do that, God. Holy Spirit, come now and move upon us. Strengthen me, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, uh, we asked the question, how can we live in such a way that our life will have an impact on people who are deeply resistant to the gospel? And we saw that Peter answered that question by teaching us that there is a direct connection between our conduct, between our holiness, and the salvation of sinners. Which means that if you have any hope of influencing people, if we have any hope of influencing people, we must be holy. I stated last week that outside of the gospel, your life is the most important tool that you have for influencing people. You can be highly educated, articulate, wise, outgoing, passionate, sincere, and talented. But if you don't have a holy life, you won't have any lasting influence. And so we talked about the character of true holiness last week. And I said that if you want to be holy, then it will start on your knees when you shut the door And you get face to face with God. Holiness comes when your desire to know God becomes greater than your desire for anything else in this life. Is that your passion? Is that your desire? And that's going to require effort. And so I said that what God is looking for is gospel grounded, faith fueled, spirit empowered effort. It's what he's looking for. And if a man is going to be holy, it will come as he disciplines himself morning by morning and evening by evening to get alone with God. We are to be people of one passion, one purpose, one desire, and that is to know God. Not just to know about God, but to know him, to enjoy him, to experience the fullness of who he is. Your greatest calling then and highest responsibility before God is to be a holy man and a holy woman. And that means your greatest priority is not your ministry, not your discipleship, not your mentoring, not your usefulness. Your greatest priority in life is your character, your testimony, and your holiness before God. And when that happens, everything else will fall in line, including your mission and your usefulness to God. 
So in summary of last week, we, we need to understand that the relationship here between true holiness and true influence. Your family's greatest need, your children's greatest need, your marriage's greatest need is your holiness. Outside of the gospel, your greatest gift that you can give people is your own transformed presence. Is that you are a man or a woman that is full of God's spirit. Now, if that's the big principle from last week, what Peter does next is show us what this looks like in real life. He's going to lay out the principle, submission to God. And then he's going to say, okay, on the basis of that submission to God, then how are you to live your life sort of on a daily basis? What's your relationship supposed to be like with government? What's your relationship supposed to be like with your employers? How are you to live your life? What practical difference then does it make if that, that you're a disciple of Jesus? Does that make any practical difference? Is your life and discipleship and following of Jesus, does that make a lick of difference? Do people look at you and say, okay, that, that's not a guy who just professes faith in Jesus. That guy is really living a different life. What difference does it make? And what Peter argues is that the impact of our lives will turn on three primary issues. And this is where we're going to be for the next month. I'm going to give you a flyover. Here's what he says, basically. It will turn on three primary issues, the impact of our life, the way we use our freedom. That's today, verses 13 through 25. Okay, the way we use our freedom, you're going to see that in verse 16. The second thing is the way we love in marriage. That's chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And the third thing is the way we forgive one another in the church. That's chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. And what Peter's saying is the impact of your life will turn on these issues. If you, li- if you have a, a marriage that's holy... If you, ha- if you live with other people in the church in a godly way, if you learn how to live in society under the submission to government and your employers in a godly way, that will impact people. And today we start with this deal of submission in society. <clears throat> and here's the deal. Today we begin with this idea. God commands us to submit to every human authority. That's the command. And look down your Bible. It's right there in verse 13. The ESV says this, be subject to every human institution. Another translation says, submit to every human authority. And so the idea here is that we are, we are to submit ourselves to every human creature in a position of authority. That's our call. That's our job. It's clear and it's straightforward. Now, here's what Peter does. When he talks about submission in society, he has two spheres of authority in view, government and work. In verses 13 through 17, he calls us to be submissive to government authority. And in verses 18 through 20, he calls us to be submissive to our employers. That's work. Now, what Peter is calling us to, let's just be clear about this, is hard This is not an easy job. Submission is hard to begin with, but especially when we are called to submit to unjust people. When you're called to submit to unfair, hurtful, oppressive, and crooked people, that's hard. We don't have the strength to do that on our own. We don't have the resolve to to do that on our own. We need help. And that's why Peter comes in at the back of this text, verses 21 through 25, and tells us where we get the power to do that. 
because you don't wake up in the morning and say, Woo, yeah, I get to submit to crooked people. <laughs> Nobody does that. You don't have the power to do that on your own. You say, well, I'm a Christian. Yeah, that's right. You're a Christian, but there's remaining flesh in you. You need ongoing power, ongoing help. And the power you get is by looking at the example of Jesus 21 through 25. And so we're going to look at two things today. The duty of submission, that's clear. And the power for submission. Okay? We, the duty and the power. Now let's talk about submission. What is submission? Submission is the idea of yielding. It's the idea of giving way to a person or, or someone or an institution in authority. We're to give way to them. We are to yield. Quite simply, it means we are to do what they ask us to do. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. We are to do it. Unless they're calling us to sin, we are to do it and obey them. Pretty clear. You say, okay, well then who are we talking about exactly? Who's in view here? Who are we supposed to submit to? Well, clearly the hardest word in the text here is in verse 13. It's the Greek word pos, which means every. That's a difficult word. Every. And if you skip down to verse 17, you'll see that word again. And I have to say that as I read this text, I was pretty convicted by verse 17. Because I'm all for fearing God. I'm certainly all about loving the brotherhood. I'm even okay with honoring the president. But that first phrase kind of trips me up. He says, honor everyone. <laughs> that, means, that means kids, you honor your parents. That means you honor your neighbors. That means, yeah, you honor and respect that guy in the drive-thru. You honor everyone. The word honor means to show respect for. And he says, honor everyone. So I'll tell you this. I studied the text really hard this week to see if I could get some wiggle room for us on this. But there's none. Everyone. Every human authority. And he begins with government. Peter breaks this down. He starts with the emperor. That would be the head honcho. The emperor is... A big deal. And for us, the illustration would be the president of the United States. That'd be the counterpart. For Peter, the emperor was Nero. Now, in this context, I can just hear somebody saying to Peter, but Peter, whoa, don't you realize who Nero is? Don't you realize that he's a megalomaniac? This guy is crazy about himself. He's a dictator. He's ruthless. He's all about himself. Don't you realize, Peter, that he is avowedly against the Lord Jesus Christ? Don't you know that you could be martyred under his reign? Why are you talking like this, Peter? What do you mean submit to this guy? You've got to be kidding me. You're out of your mind, Peter. Of course Peter knew these things. Of course Peter knew who Nero was. And yet what does he do? He says, submit to the emperor. And you can guess what? He ratchets it up another notch. And then he says, not only submit, but actually honor the emperor. Verse 17. Honor? Honor Nero? You've got to be kidding me. Peter. Dude, 
Exercise your right, man. Don't submit to that freak. Call for a protest. Rally the Christians together. Demand equal rights. Tell Nero that he's wrong. Don't submit to that guy. Is that what Peter does? Does he fight Nero? No. He submits to Nero's harsh and oppressive leadership. And where did that get him? I'll tell you where it got him. Dead. Dead. He was martyred. History tells us that Nero actually crucified Peter upside down on a cross. That's who Nero was. And and here's Peter saying, honor that guy. Where did he get the power to do that? All we have to do is honor our president. And some of us have a hard time doing that. Peter says, honor Nero. And that's the same man that crucified him upside down. We have a long way to go to be the men and women God has called us to be. Unbelievable. These early Christians are unreal. Now, friends, this is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for a number of reasons. For one, it's not very Western. Okay, this is not a Western idea. Because we're big on free speech. We're big even on public protest. And you know what? Some of that is okay, and some of that is right. Okay? But Robert Culver, in his book, Toward a Biblical View of Civil Government, says this, and, the, and, I, and these are penetrating words, and I think we do well to, to listen to him. Listen to what he says. Robert Culver, church members whose Christian activism has produced many, mainly, excuse me, whose Christian activism has produced mainly sign-holding, marching, protesting, and shouting, might well observe that the early Christians first pursued prayer. And when they did preach in homes and in marketplaces, they preached the way to heaven. If we are to be persecuted, let it be because we are preachers of Christ, not defiers of law. Look through the New Testament. What did the early church do? When they were oppressed and harassed by government, what did they do? Did they protest? Was that their default reaction? No. There's a great example here in Acts chapter 12. You don't need to flip there, but Peter's in prison. You know the story. It's an exciting story. And, and, and these 16 prison guards are keeping Peter in prison. Okay, He's not getting out. He's in there. 16 men are guarding him. Okay, so eventually Peter gets out. How does he get out? How does Peter escape 16 men guarding him? Did Christian crowds gather outside of the prison and protest? Did they demand that Peter be released from prison? No. Get a load of this. The church does the stupidest thing possible. Can you believe this? The church gets down on its knees and pleads with God to release Peter (laughs) to do a miracle. And the world looks at it and says, those stupid Christians praying and asking God to release their guy from 16 prisoners. Those stupid Christians. And God looks down from heaven and he says, yes. And Peter gets released. Oh, friends. Where has prayer gone in the church? 
Have we traded prayer for political strategy? Surely not. Surely not. Are we using the world's methodology to achieve what only God can do? I hope not. Now listen, don't, don't misunderstand me. I am not suggesting that we be uninvolved. Of course, we should fulfill our responsibilities as citizens of this country. Of course, we should be editors of newspapers and serve at the city, state, and national levels of government. Of course, if we have judiciary wisdom, there might be a place for us in the judiciary of our land. That's assumed. I assume that. We assume that. We have two brothers doing that right now, and praise God for that. But what I'm addressing is this. When all of that is said and done, none of that is where our hope lies. 2 Corinthians 10.3 For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. There are things in America, there are things in the world that, that political government and, and, and innovative strategy will not tear down. There are things that only divine power can take out. Are we exercising the privilege of prayer? Before anything else, may God help us as a church to pray. And I'm so pleased that we have people who are hungry to pray in this church, but can I call us to prayer? Can we be a church of prayer? Look, prayer meeting has never been popular in the church. No matter when you schedule it, no matter what day of the week, no matter what morning, no matter what time, prayer meeting is never popular. It's never been popular at this church, and it never will be popular in this church because we are living in a sin-cursed world, and it's hard Prayer is hard and it's not going to be popular. But if God will help us, we can be a praying church. And I'm praying for us. And I'm asking the Lord to do some big things in our church regarding prayer. And it's going to start here in our own hearts. We've got to want it. We've got to desire it. We've got to know that without prayer, we are useless people. We are helpless so may God help us. May God grip us. What's that going to look like in your life? I don't know. I got, you got five kids at home. You can't get them all ready. You can't get them out the door. I don't know. I don't know what that's going to look like for you. What's it going to look like for you if you're, if you're a widow or a widower? What's it going to look like if you're a young person? What's it going to look like if you're a pastor? What's it going to look like if you're a businessman and you work six days a week and you work 65 hours a week? I don't know, but I know one thing. Everybody in here needs to think, what can I do to be a more prayerful person? May God help us as a church. Well, Peter goes on to say that we should submit not only to the emperor, but to governors, verse 14. And that means every appointed, elected, hired official within the structures of society. We're just to submit across the board to these guys. And we're to do that because God has a purpose. And what's God's purpose? Verse 15. For this is the will of God that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Now that word silence there, it means to gag, to muzzle, to restrain. It, it means to stop the mouth so that there's nothing to say. In other words, gag them. <laughs> That's what it means. 
It means stop their mouths. God intends for you to live such holy lives, such godly lives, that the mouths of all people are stopped. Are we doing that? Are you doing that? Is there anything compelling about your Christianity? Do non-Christians look at you and put their hand on their mouth because they have nothing to say? Listen, a holy life is a compelling life. Tell me a holy man that you know, a holy woman that you know that's not compelling. It's compelling. There's something about that. You have nothing to say. Well, at this point, Peter kind of goes in an unexpected direction, verse 16. And he says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil. Well, what does that mean? Well, really, verse 16 kind of ties this whole passage together. Peter says, because you're slaves of God, live as free people. Notice both those words in the same verse, slaves and free. Just chew on that for a second. Slaves of God equals free people. Do you hear that? Slaves of God equals free people. Slaves. Now, now let me speak into your life if you're not a Christian here this morning. Think about your life for a moment. You know you don't live for God. You know that you don't love God. You know that you have no real hope. You know that you're miserable and you know that every morning when you get up, your number one quest is to be happy and to pursue happiness. You know that. Let me tell you this. If you want to be happy, if you want to find true lasting satisfaction in this life, then you need to do this. Here's how to do it. Become a slave. Become a slave of God. See, there are really only two types of people in the world. There are slaves of men and there are slaves of God. And if you're not a Christian, then you are enslaved to men. You are. You live for man. You worship man. You idolize man. American Idol. You, you, get on, you watch The Voice. You find somebody on The Voice that you think is amazing. And you begin to follow them. And you begin to, you begin to like them. You begin to buy all their music and all their CDs. And you idolize people. You need man's approval. You want to be accepted. You want people to say you're a good person. You want people to like you. You want to have friends. You're a slave of men. You're driven by that. But if you're a Christian, then you're a slave of God. You live for God. You worship God. You need his approval alone. So friend, if you're not a Christian, then what you need more than anything else is to become a slave today, a slave to God. Well, I said, verse 16 is pivotal and we need to understand what Peter means here when he says, live as free people. At first glance, when you read this, Peter's words almost seem cruel. Here he's telling a group of Christian slaves. A lot of these guys are living as household slaves. Okay. And he's telling a group of these slaves who are suffering under a harsh, oppressive government to live as free people. Does that not seem odd to you at all? He's telling slaves to live as free people. What a sick thing to say. That's like telling a quadriplegic in a wheelchair, hey, get out of your wheelchair and show the crowd how to do some jumping jacks. That's cruel. That's insensitive. You don't say that to a quadriplegic. 
He can't do it. And here you have Christian slaves living under an oppressive society. And Peter says, live as free people. That seems cruel. Unless Peter means something here about Christian freedom that we don't understand. And he does. What Peter means by freedom is powerful. In this context, listen carefully, I suggest that Peter's definition of freedom works like this. Freedom means that you have the ability to make a different choice. Freedom means you have the ability to make a different choice. Now let me unpack that, okay? When Henry Ford unrolled his cars on, uh, on the assembly line, okay, he said, you can have any color that you like as long as it's black. Yeah, there's not a lot of freedom there. There's no choice. There wasn't a lot of freedom there. But here, freedom means that you have the ability to make a different choice. And Peter says, you have freedom, use it. Now think about his audience. They're living in a situation where they're oppressed by the state. And what would you expect of people that are oppressed by the state? You'd expect them to oppose the state. All right? What would you expect of people who are suffering injustice at work? You'd expect them to hate their employers. What would you expect of people who are suffering conflict in marriage, chapter 3, 1 through 7? You would expect them to either hunker down in self-defense or perhaps just in our culture, just walk away. Just give up the marriage. So if you don't have support from the state, if you're suffering injustice at work, and if you're fundamentally unhappy at home, what's Peter talking about freedom? What freedom is that? Where's the freedom in that? Here it is. Listen carefully. For, for the Christian, freedom means you have the ability to make a different choice. Freedom means you don't have to hate your employer if they treat you badly. Freedom means you don't have to leave your spouse just because you're living in a rough marriage. Freedom means you don't have to retaliate and get even with people. You can make a different choice. You have the power to let it go and entrust yourself to God. That's what freedom means. And here's the big point. Listen carefully. The impact of our life and ministry will depend in large measure on the way we use our freedom. Let me say it again. The impact of our life and ministry will depend in large measure on the way we use our freedom. That's Peter's point. He's saying, make a different choice than everyone else in society. He's saying, you don't have to do what is natural to your flesh. You can do something different. You can do something countercultural. You can do something Christian. Freedom only exists when we have the power to rise above the inclination of our natural flesh and act in a way that is different for the glory of God. And that's what it means to be born again. You have a new nature, a new power at work within you. And Jesus says that what I'm giving you is this freedom. If the son of man sets you free, you are free indeed. Incredible. And Peter says, he grabs that theme. He says, use that freedom. Live as free people. Oh, may God help us to exercise our freedom. Do you feel your freedom? Do you realize your freedom? You have the power, the power inside you to make a different choice. 
for the glory of God. And that is supposed to impact people. Because you're not doing what everybody else is doing. Are there other people that are being mistreated at your work? You betcha. You're not the only one. Why are you acting so different? Because you have a new power at work within you. You have the freedom to act differently, to make a different choice. That's big for us. So that's what submission looks like in government. And he sums it all up in verse 17. Here's your citizenship theology in four points. Verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. All right? Now, Peter turns the facet of the diamond. He shifts gears, whatever analogy you want to use. And so we're going to change with him. He moves into employment. Verse 18. And he says this. He says, household slaves. Your text might say servants, but really a better translation would be household slaves. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, let's be clear. The Bible nowhere condones slavery. The Bible teaches that all men and women have equal dignity before God. Slavery is a great evil, and nowhere does the Bible support it. What, what it does do, though, is that it gives wise and practical counsel to believers who are living in the midst of injustice and have no reasonable hope of getting out of it. See, the Bible speaks to the world as it is, not to the world as we would like it to be. It's God's word spoken into a fallen, fallen world, and therefore God speaks to the oppressed, and therefore God speaks to people who are suffering injustice. So in that sense, the Bible does speak to the issue of slavery. Now, in a nation like ours, where slavery is outlawed, what practical application does this have for us? Well, the best application is the association that we call employment, where you work, where you get your paycheck. That's the best application of these verses, 18 through 20. And notice the exhortation. If you'll you'll just allow me the freedom, he says, employees be subject to your employers. Okay? With all respect, all respect, not only to the good ones. Man, I love my boss. Great guy to work for. Not only the good ones, but also to the unjust. So what are we to do with unjust employers? The same thing we're to do with just ones. Honor them. Respect them. Give them honor. That word unjust here is translated unreasonable, harsh, cruel. Fascinating thing. It's actually the Greek word skolios which eventually led to the word scoliosis. What's scoliosis? It's a curvature of one's spine. And three times, no less than three times in the, in, the, in the New Testament, that word is translated crooked, just flat out crooked. Crooked employers. It, what's it like? Did anyone here have a crooked boss? Anyone here tempted at work because you got a boss that's just, I mean, just flat out, just unjust and crooked. You go there, you dread it every day. What's it like to have a crooked boss? Well, it means this. It means that you don't ever know what's coming next. But the only thing you know is this. It's not going to be for your best interest. Certainly not going to help you out. And you feel used by your boss. You feel abused. 
What do you do? What do you do in that situation? Submit. That's a tough word. If they're using you to get a competitive advantage, submit. If they're overworking you to save money or to keep from hiring, submit. If they're promoting others when you deserve the promotion, submit. If they're treating you poorly, hurtfully, or unfairly, submit. Now, you might be thinking, okay, well, who's going to take care of me then? If I don't stand up for myself, who's, who's got my back? God does. God will. That's the point of 19 and 20. Peter says that if you endure sorrow while suffering unjustly, here's the phrase, this finds favor with God. Favor. Do you want God's favor? This finds favor with God. The point is simple. God comes to the aid of the person who does not take matters into their own hands. God comes to the aid of the person who entrusts themselves to a faithful God who judges justly. So here's the deal. Look up here. You have two choices. Plan A or plan B. Plan A is I'm going to stick up for myself. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to stick up for my rights. Or plan B. I'm going to suffer unjustly. And I'm going to entrust myself to God. Okay? So if you do that, what's God going to do? If you entrust yourself to God, what's God going to do? Well, I think one of three things, probably. One, he might give you a new boss. He might just move him out. That's possible. Two, he might move you out. He might send you to another place of work. Or three, he might give you a new capacity to live in that painful situation. Now, I know you're thinking, I want number one and I want number two. I don't want to live. I don't want a new capacity. I want a new job. I want a new boss. But friend, God knows you and he loves you and he's working for your best interest. He's refining you. And God just may give you number three because he wants to change you and transform you. Through the fires of affliction, aren't we changed? Let me ask you this. Are you the only person that's troubled at your work? You say no. I mean, there's other people that are troubled. Okay, well, let me ask you this then. Are, are some of those other people that are troubled unbelievers? Yeah, okay. Well, they are, yeah. Okay, well, then listen to this. You have the Lord. They don't. You have a special capacity to bear up under those kinds of things. They don't. God is with you. God will help you. All right? Provided that the reason for your suffering is not a result of your sin. Which is a huge point. That's verse 20. Because he says, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? If you sin and you're punished, well, what credit is that? You brought that on yourself. When you fail to put in an hour's work for an hour's pay, when you refuse to work hard because you've been hurt or offended, when, when you come in late and you go home early, when you oppose or undermine the authority structure over you because you just don't like them. If you suffer then, if you are punished then, God says, you're on your own. 
But listen, if you work hard, if you're mistreated and continue to endure, then God sees that and will take care of you. Some of you need to be encouraged. Some of you need to go home every day from work and remind yourself that, that God sees my heart. He sees my work and he will reward me in due course. There's nothing I can do to please my boss. No matter how hard I try, no matter how many accounts I establish, no matter how much money I make for the company, there's nothing I can do to please my boss. But every day, God is pleased with you. That's enough, isn't it? Living for the audience of one. Every day, God smiles upon you and his favor is upon you. So there it is. There's Peter. Submit to government, submit to employment. That's a high and a holy calling. And here's what you must understand. Verse 21. For to this you have been called. What? Christian, listen. This is what God has called you to. God has called you to be mistreated and suffer unjustly. God has called you to that. For to this you have been called. You say, you got to be kidding me. That wasn't part of the gospel I heard. Well, good morning. It's in there. This is what you were called to. Make note of this. Following Jesus means suffering injustice. It's one and the same. You follow Jesus, you sign up for suffering. You follow Jesus, you sign up for mistreatment. You follow Jesus, you sign up for injustice. That's what's going to happen. It's amazing. And so who's sufficient for these things? Where do we get the power to live this way under this harsh, cruel, unreasonable environment? And the answer, of course, is 22 through 25. The power comes as we look to the Savior. Verse 21, Christ also suffered for you. Listen, Christ suffered for you. For you. Christ suffered for you. He suffered Christ suffered, suffered, suffered for you. Christ did that. Leaving you an example so that you should what? Go your own way? Do your own thing? Stick up for your own rights? Put your foot down? No. Jesus suffered for you, leaving you a what? An example so that you will do what? Follow in his footsteps. Don't miss that. Christ suffered for you. Who should have suffered? Point to the person who should have suffered. You should have suffered. I should have suffered. Let me ask you this. How many nights have you tossed and turned in your bed thinking about what Christ had to endure? How many nights, how many sleepless nights have you experienced thinking about the agony and the pain of the cross? I'm serious. How many sleepless nights have you endured because you were trying to wrap your mind around how your sin was stuck on an innocent man named Jesus? And that bothered you. And you couldn't sleep because that's wrong. It was unfair. It was unjust. It's not right. Have you ever stayed up all night because that bothered you? That messed with you? That he suffered for you? Or are your sleepless nights because you didn't get that account? You didn't get that promotion. You didn't get that impartial hearing. It's so wrong. It's so wrong what they're doing to me. And you can't sleep. 
Friend, what's that about? See, we have this huge, massive capacity to feel mistreated, to feel wronged. But when it comes to understanding what Jesus suffered, what he endured, how he was mistreated, we don't even begin to feel it. We need perspective. When I suffer, I need to go to Jesus. I need to forget about my hurt and my pain and my fears and my tears. I need to look at Jesus. That's what I need to do. How did Jesus suffer? Peter tells us. Peter spent three years with Jesus. He He knew how Jesus suffered. He knows. And he says this. There are four things that Jesus did not do. When Jesus suffered, four things he did not do. One, he committed no sin. (laughs) that's amazing. No sin in the midst of suffering. That's usually when sin comes out, isn't it? You're, you're, uh, you're under the gun. You're got pressure on you. People are coming after you. Sin just comes out. No sin. He says, number two, no deceit was found in his mouth. That means his mouth was sinless. Jesus didn't even sin with his mouth. No deceit. When he was insulted, number three, Did he insult back? No. When he was reviled, he didn't revile back. He didn't insult other people. Number four, when he suffered, he did not threaten those who crucified him. That one amazes me. Couldn't he have threatened them? Couldn't he have said, you can do this to me, but you realize what happens when you do this to me, right? Jesus didn't say that. He didn't threaten anybody. He didn't do any of those things. That's what we do. We threaten people. We pay people back. We insult people that insult us. We sin, not Jesus. What did he do? Verse 23, he did one thing. He kept, he kept entrusting himself. That's ongoing. He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus had to keep doing that. And you have to keep doing that. Every day, I got to keep entrusting myself to the one who is righteous. This is so hard. God, help me. I can't do this. This boss is crushing me. This place is killing me. God, help me. Keep entrusting yourself. Keep entrusting yourself. Keep entrusting yourself. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. We need to remember the sufferings of Jesus. When you are suffering and mistreated, look to him. Think about what he endured. And with the eyes of faith, You will see Jesus as he's being scourged. You will see Jesus as he is whipped. His back is whipped until it becomes strips of flesh. You will see Jesus carry the cross on his bruised and broken back. You will see him with the eyes of faith walking down that street and falling down. And he can't carry his cross any longer. So Simon of Cyrene has to pick it up and carry it for him. You will see him stumble. You will see him mocked and a crown of thorns three to five inches pressed into his head. Blood flows from his head and his nose and his mouth and his back and his shoulders and his legs. He is exhausted and shattered. You will see him writhe in pain as they lay the crossbar on him and as they drive railroad spikes through the most sensitive nerve centers of his body, you will see him struggle to breathe. 
You will see his brokenness and pain as he looks upon a crowd of people laughing at him and poking fun at Jesus. You will see people insulting him. And when he's insulted, you will hear him say nothing. Like a lamb led to the shearer is silent. No threats, no hateful speech. Never once does Jesus say, don't you know that I'm God? I'll send you all to hell. Never once does he do that. He's silent. And then amazingly, finally, a word comes out of his mouth with his remaining strength. And he says, Father, forgive them. What? How could he? Look at him. Look at what he's doing. In his dying moments, Jesus is ministering to a prisoner beside him. And then in his disgraceful condition, in this bloody disgraceful condition, he looks down at his mother and he cares for her physical need. Are you kidding me? When Jesus uttered these final words from the cross, what is he concerned about? He's thinking about his mother and he's thinking about you and me who have sinned against him and he's calling us to repent and he's asking the father to forgive us and he's even working on the salvation of the guy next to him. This is how good and amazing God is. He's altogether selfless, altogether gracious. All the while Jesus experiences on the cross spiritual death. By becoming sin for us, the father turns his back from him. And under the weight of that, Jesus moans and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the Bible says that in a loud, in a loud voice of proclamation, Jesus cries, it is finished. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. Why? Why did Jesus suffer? Peter closes with this statement in verse 24. Here's why. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live to righteousness. You have been healed by his wounds. Why did Jesus suffer? Because he was bearing your sin and my sin. Listen, we killed the son of God. This is what it means. And you need to know that you're not not just a victim of suffering. You're an abuser. You're a murderer. You are not just a person who has been wronged. You wronged God. When you think about what Jesus endured, remind yourself of this, that you did that to him. You were the cause of that suffering. I should look at Jesus on the cross and say, this is what Jonathan Christman did to the son of God. And how did God respond to me? He forgave me. He, he loved me. He paid for my sin. He saved me from his own wrath. He rescued me from hell. And now he's preparing a glorious place for me. I was straying like a dumb sheep. But the good shepherd brought me to himself. Oh, friend. 
How do you deal with ungodly rulers, wicked employers, and unjust suffering? Retaliate. Stand up for your rights. Insult others. Take matters into your own hands. No. Look to Jesus. Follow his footsteps. And entrust yourself to God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your example. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Make us like you. Strengthen us, oh God. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.